0: This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the dharma for real life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, come and join us at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash community. Thank you, and happy listening. Okay, so... uh... So start off, not neglect the obvious, just start off by uh, the kind of straightforward basics. Uh, I said them already but I'll say it again. What are the Brahma viharas um, First of all, what what does Brahma Vahara mean? Because that might be helpful as well. Um, Vahara means abode or dwelling place. Um, It's, you often hear it uh, associated with the the dwelling place of monks or nuns, but it's actually got a wider meaning, much wider meaning than that. So it means abode or dwelling place. Uh, And Brahma is uh, a reference to one of the ancient Indian and now Hindu uh, deities, who, Brahma is the, you know, the overall, the creator of the world. So Brahmavahara means uh, literally means the abode of Brahma. So you might wonder why that's got into um, Buddhism, since Brahma doesn't hold a place, or at least not that important a place in uh, in, uh, in Buddhism. Certainly not the Buddhism that we practice uh, in the West. Maybe a bit different in India. Uh, well, basically, it's a, it's, it's a way of indicating that the, 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 mind, the kind of mental states in the mind that we can create for ourselves, if we could dwell in the Brahma Viharas, would be a mind of great good fortune and uh, almost, almost a god a godlike mind. That's the association it has within an Indian context, but I don't know if that quite works for us. Uh, but it's, uh, it's just an indicate that uh, if we could really let our minds be per- permeated by uh, loving kindness and the others, then um, we wouldn't experience mental suffering or mental anguish. We would experience great joy all the time. We've been a very, very fortunate uh, state. So the name indicates all of that uh, in, a particular, in a particular way. But it's, it's good for us to try and enter that. That world. I think it, if Brahma doesn't quite work, I think we could probably lay that aside. But Vahara is quite an evocative uh, word to use in terms of abode and dwelling place and where your mind dwells, uh, wh- what your mind's surrounded by. Uh, so it's quite good just to just to just to bear that in mind. So the meditations, um, the Brahma Vahara meditations, then are on loving kindness, compassion, gladness, or sympathetic joy. I quite like gladness. It is often described as, um, especially in our movement, Mudita is translated as sympathetic joy, but I came across another translation um, a few years ago that I just just like gladness. I just just like the simplicity of it. Uh, So gladness is the third one, and then equanimity the fourth one. So it's a set of practices um, or a mandala of um, meditation practice. There's There's a a process of unfolding that uh, happens when when we practice them and the practices themselves lead to the cultivation of these four great emotions so the first thing to say about them uh, loving kindness, compassion, gladness equanimity, they are unlimited in their scope so that has immediate consequences uh, we can hear that and go wow you know, it's, very, it's very uplifting that it's, uh, it's, uh, they're unlimited in their scope the immediate consequences of, consequence of that is that therefore we don't cultivate them on our terms um, we cultivate them from within our present scope what we're capable of but the actual practice broadens and extends that scope and that won't happen if we insist on doing it on our terms we've got to do it much more and much uh, less limited than that. So we cultivate them within their terms. And their terms are unlimited. So be warned. That's not necessarily going to always be easy. That might lead us into some quite difficult and uh, hard places. Uh, and they're, they're described often um, by the Buddha, you know, after he's given other teachings. Um, they're often, he describes them as being the outcome then of those other teachings. So I read, if you remember last night, I read a a little bit from the Kalama Sutta. Um, So that had been a teaching from the Buddha on how to know whether a particular approach, particular spiritual teaching, a spiritual path is is helpful or not. And he taught them, he taught them a lot about clear thinking and knowing whether something produces the good rather than... uh, the evil, and um, and then and then he said, well, what I what I quoted last night, I'll just say it again. <laughs> Finishes off, says, when a noble disciple is free from covetousness, free from ill will and undeluded, then aware and mindful, he abides with a heart imbued with loving kindness, extending to one quarter, second quarter, the third quarter, and the fourth quarter of the world. So, above, below, around, and everywhere, and to all as to himself. He abides with a heart imbued with abundant, exalted, measureless, loving-kindness, unhostile, and unafflicted by ill-will, extending to the entire world. He abides with a heart imbued with compassion in the same way, with a heart imbued with gladness. He abides with a heart imbued with equanimity. So you definitely get the sense of the unlimitedness, don't you? So, uh, when I was first giving this talk, it, as I say, it was a couple of years ago. So it was 2003. And um, I, as I was writing it, actually what happened was I, I, I remembered um, a retreat I'd been on two years before that, which was in 2001. In fact, it was in... September, it included September 2001 she review was on it as well, and it included September the 11th, 2001 so I was on a, I was on a, a retreat two month long retreat, it was an ordination retreat and uh, we were meditating a lot on it now I was one of the people on the retreat who knew what had happened that most people didn't we, that people found, we told people at the end but I knew all the way through. Um, and I found myself in, in the position, of, I mean, I don't often find myself in this position of, I was just asking myself, why am I doing this? You know, sitting meditating for, you know, several hours in the day. And, uh, you know, this kind of programme, some were prone to what we've got this weekend with that amount of meditation in it. And I thought, well, why am I doing this? What good does it do? You know, who benefits? Look at what's just happened. Um, so it brought to the fore questions about: Does my meditation have a sphere of influence beyond me? How would I know if it had a sphere of influence? I mean, I might, I might have hopes for it, or um, um, or I might be a bit sceptical about it. In my case, I'd be a bit more sceptical than hopeful. But you know, it doesn't really matter. I mean, how would I even know if it did? Um, Well, of course, a meditation practice does have a sphere of concern beyond me. That's not necessarily the same as a sphere of influence, but it does have a sphere of concern beyond me. But does that actually make any difference to anyone in that sphere of concern? So I I was just having these questions uh, in in my mind on that particular uh, particular occasion. And uh, I'll come come back to that later on. But in the meantime, let's look at this sphere of concern of meditation. Now, uh, the previous Pope wrote a book called On the Threshold of Hope, and uh, he devoted a whole chapter to Buddhism in it. Now, I thought it was good. I thought that was good. I thought it was good that he took the trouble. Although actually it was an attempt to repudiate Buddhism as a worthy spiritual path. But I thought it was good that he took the trouble because it showed that we're getting somewhere. Uh, and after all, what else was the man going to do? He was convinced about his spiritual path. Of course he'll try and convince other people about that, it's fair enough. So I thought it was good that he took the trouble. I thought it was a shame that he didn't take the trouble to find out what Buddhism actually does exhort its followers to do. Because according to the previous Pope, it's a selfish path not concerned with the world. If you look up the book, you'll find that written. So on that occasion on September 2001, uh, there was I wondering what effect, if any, my meditation practice has on the world. And about 100 kilometers south of where I was, I was in Italy. uh, 100 kilometers south was was the author of the chapter who said that indeed, not only did it have no such effect, it even seemed to have no interest in having any such effect. So that's all nonsense. Of course, Buddhism and Buddhist meditation is interested in the world. Uh, the, uh, Buddhist meditation is it's not concerned with oneself. We're not concerned with our, ourself alone alone. But as you meditate, it is probably true to say that there and then, you know, you are primarily concerned with yourself. So does that mean the Pope's right then? Was he right? Well, it's complicated, isn't it? (laughs) The Buddhist experience says that if we don't concern ourselves with our own minds, then we'll be pretty well unable to see life clearly ourselves or to help anyone else to see it clearly and to learn to respond well within it. So maybe the answer to the uh, the Pope is that Buddhists practice self concern yes we do we do it for the benefit of ourselves and others so probably good good to recollect what the Buddha expected to follow from his teachings um, if our, initial, if our initial point of, it, of practice is our self, which is when we're sitting on the cushion, it's our self that we're dealing with. So what, is, what did the Buddha expect to follow from that? Well, from that, when you uh, read a lot of uh, Buddhist uh, texts, from that follows would follow a concern for all of humanity and all of what human beings experience, the whole human condition. So I start off with myself, what the Buddha expects that after doing that for a while, my sphere of concern is going to extend to the whole human condition. And then not only that, what follows from that then is a concern for all beings everywhere, whatsoever, all beings whatsoever, not just human beings, but all beings whatsoever. So the sphere of concern of meditation is immense. And it's in this sense that the Brahma are unlimited in their scope. They include all of that. So, okay, before moving on, before saying anything more about the actual Brahma Viharas themselves, I'm just going to lay down some groundwork for us. First of all, I hope it's inspiring to hear that the scope of Buddhist meditation is immense, unlimited, includes concern for all beings whatsoever, in all conditions whatsoever. That, of course, does have implications for us if we want to practice it. It means we need to go beyond our limitations. So in particular, we have to go beyond our likes and dislikes. Beyond our preferences. And these likes and dislikes, preferences, arise independence upon certain experiences. So independence upon, they arise independence upon pleasant and unpleasant occurrences, They arise and depend upon pleasant and unpleasant people. And they arise and depend upon pleasant and unpleasant expectations. There may be other things. Those are the main things that came to my mind. So our, our likes and dislikes arise and depends upon those. While we live under the sway of those sorts of likes and dislikes and preferences, the Buddha likened us to a drunken man. Or a drunken woman, I expect, staggering about, acting inappropriately, and of course subject to the consequences of those inappropriate actions. So, um, so that there you are. That's that's a description of us while we're under the influence of likes and dislikes and personal preferences. Uh, that make us drawn towards something, craving after something and are, and are very averse to something else and pushing away from it, excluding ourselves from it. That, according to the Buddha, is like staggering about in a drunken state. So beginning to go beyond our likes and dislikes doesn't mean that we'll stop having these preferences so much as we'll, we'll begin to stop the craving and aversion that tends to follow them. So instead of being driven by likes and dislikes, or even intoxicated by them, we begin to find other ways of responding to what are just very basic experiences of being alive. Things happen, and they're pleasant, or they're unpleasant, or they're, or they're a bit grey, and they're a bit neutral, a bit boring, even. Uh, what the Buddha is saying is just, just, um, just really take note about what happens in your mind, in your heart, in response to that ongoing experience of being alive. So that's the first thing then of laying down the groundwork. We have, we're going to have to be prepared to go beyond our current uh, preferences. So then next, in addition to going beyond those preferences, we'll need to go beyond our present limited understanding of, how the, way, of the way things actually are. So in Buddhist practice, this involves facing up to the transiency of things and the experience of the precariousness of life. As often as not, we'd like to avoid being aware of that. Well, we're all aware of it. We know it very well, but we'd really like to avoid having to think much about it. So in a word then, um, what, they, what Buddhism itself, but in particular the Brahma viharas are... Um, mean for us in practice they're going to mean facing up to impermanence including our own impermanence that's also of course the one that is hardest probably but it's also hard to face up to um, impermanence of people that are close to us people that we love so it means facing up to the inescapable fact that everything is liable to ending things arise and they fall away and there is nothing which does not do that so if you want to practice Buddhist meditation and the Brahma Vihara's in particular, then again, be warned. Your likes and dislikes are going to have to weaken their hold over you and me, mine over me. And we'll all have to face up to impermanence, transience, precariousness. But if we do, then... Carrying on using the Buddha's image, then we disentangle ourselves from um, drunkenness and its, its consequences. So, if we were to do that, we'd, we'd uh, gain clarity and balance of mind, we'd gain the ability to respond to situations appropriately, and in the process we'd also gain great joy. We do gain great joy. So that's the sort of groundwork. The next question would be how to begin then. <laughs> uh, well, the Brahma Vihara practices have, have they have a given form, which involves bringing to mind a succession of people whom you know, actual people whom you actually know, friends, enemies, people that you see regularly but you really don't know much about. Um, in one of the practices we bring to mind someone we know who's currently experiencing suffering in their life in one of, th- one of them we bring to mind someone who's currently experiencing joy in their life so that's the general form of the practices and then, quite sim- then it's quite simple really <laughs> we just try to practice generosity of heart and mind to that spectrum of humanity of our acquaintance and then, and then, in our imagination, extend that spectrum to, to include all beings and all situations. So you could say that Brahmavah- the Brahma Vaharas exhort us to, first of all, notice what we feel when we bring someone to mind. And then extend the spectrum of feeling over which we can respond with kindness. So this, of course, is where our likes and dislikes come in and the need to overcome them. See, we bring to mind we're bring to mind a friend. Okay, so recollecting a friend, on all likelihood, more often than not, is going to produce a pleasant feeling. That's what the definition of a friend is. We like them. Produces a pleasant feeling. And it's probably not too hard to feel friendliness and appreciation in response to that. Okay. Recollection of an enemy produces an unpleasant feeling and dislike of that tends, uh, unpleasant feeling tends to come in and we want to go mm, all the scenarios that happen between us and that person come to mind uh, and suddenly we remember in great detail all the previous ones right in that moment and we want to go not going there uh, so it produces unpleasant feeling when we recollect an enemy. But the aim is still to respond with the same sort of kindness and friendliness. Uh, and if not appreciation exactly, then at least some patience some patience and some understanding. So when we bring to mind an enemy in these practices, we're, we're, and then I say, I'll, I'll say to you, respond with, see if you can you know, respond with. Kindliness. it doesn't mean pretend fits the enemy it doesn't mean pretending that everything that goes on between me and them does isn't somehow isn't important or doesn't isn't really like that it's not about seeing them through rose-tinted spectacles it's about really taking on board that this person creates an unpleasant experience in us it may be as strong as fear sometimes or or, or anger might be milder than that but whatever it is it's not pleasant so we're certainly not trying to ignore that, we're actually trying to to feel it quite you know, cleanly, but then not do the usual, which is to go like that, or to go into all sorts of scenarios about who's right and who's wrong and who said what when, under that narrative. We don't want to go into the narrative, we just want to stay with ourselves in the moment, notice the unpleasant feeling and then try and respond to that differently. That's the challenge in the, with the enemy stage recollecting someone um, about whom we know very little, because we do that in these practices as well. So, see, now I think that's intriguing. That's intriguing when we try that. Because in this case, I think you need to get under the surface of, you know, disinterest or unconcern. Because someone that we see, but really, you know, don't know hardly at all. So you have to get under the surface somewhere. And uh, we do that by trying to see the underlying humanity of the person which is of course the same as our own underlying humanity. So that's the point of connection. But it's not based on actually knowing much about them in the way that it is with a friend and the enemy. It's, it's, it's about trying to get underneath the surface to what we have in common. So recollecting a neutral person in a sense opens us up to the whole of humanity one person, because the whole of humanity is going to come in most of humanity, if we think about them, are going to come into the category of neutral people, or well, not even that because we don 't even know them. We could imagine you know we could imagine them we see t v we see newspapers and everything we we'll read books um, but most of humanity comes into that category of the neutral person, the third stage in the metabolism but so if you can open up to one neutral person in principle, you could open up to the rest of humanity mm-hmm. with a bit of imaginative connection Uh, so not only do we open up to them in that way also we're opening up to ourselves more deeply less superficially and less independence upon likes and dislikes, because with neutral person there isn't much in terms of like and dislike that's there, that's one of the great advantages of doing them, doing that person And uh, so that neutral person was actually, I think it's very intriguing and important and uh, it feeds back into the stage, other stages of the practice because we're not really having to tussle much with like and dislike in it. We're trying to do something a bit different in that one. Okay, so I was meant to be answering the question how to begin. Right. So a key moment exists in all of this. So... I'll that, that's that, what, that's I'll describe it in a minute. But um, this key moment would be it'd be good to try and uh, focus and home in on that key moment while we're actually in the shrine room meditating. So the key moment the, the, the moment is the moment when you experience a pleasant or an unpleasant or a neutral feeling. The moment when you experience it, but when so far not much else has happened. So when so far you haven't started wishing for more of the experience or wishing for less of it or getting bored um, at that key moment there's there's just the bare experience of the feeling that appears that arises when you recollect the person so it's quite subtle and it does take some you know, practice to get the hang of it. And uh, we don't do that immediately. What u- usually happens is we, we go into the next bit of it. We go into starting wishing we went here and we weren't doing this. And, and Then we notice how uncomfortable we are. You know, the whole narratives open up. So, um, so try and look for that moment. But don't be too, you know, don't blame yourself or don't get too um, disheartened or anything when you don't catch it. Just whenever... Whenever whenever your awareness does come into the process again, you just go from there. But that key moment is is the real opportunity to practice these meditations. So on a a longer retreat, I would take quite a lot of time just doing doing mindfulness to try and uh, help us us kind of tune into that. Uh, uh, Because there is a whole practice anyway of mindfulness, of feeling. It's one of the foundations of mindfulness. um a good a good uh, key for it actually is just being aware of your body physically because often you know how you respond is, is is there in your body if you can be aware of it if it doesn't quite work to you know have uh see this whole practice and just um as an inner reflection uh yeah just be aware of your body and you know you can suddenly be aware that you've ten stop um And those things are are sometimes good because they take us back to the kind of basics of ourselves. That's sometimes a good way to then just go, what am I feeling? What is it that's going, what is it that's happening now? So good to have those questions there. Um, It grounds, awareness of one's body grounds oneself and it does make it easier to catch this uh, key moment. Having caught the key moment, all you have to do is remember to be kind. (laughs) Whatever image or memory you've called to mind, whatever the person is, you just have to let your heart be touched by it and encourage your heart to respond with kindness at that moment. And that's it, really. That's how you practice the Brahma Vaharas. All of them, all of them. Uh, uh, So in case you think you might have missed something, (laughs) I'll go through it. I'll just go through it again. You bring someone to mind you try to catch your mind's first response to their image or the memory that response will be somewhere along a spectrum from intensely pleasant to intensely unpleasant feeling somewhere in that spectrum and you let that feeling touch your heart and then let your heart touch the feeling with kindness and that's all now it's not difficult to understand And it doesn't have to involve a great effort to, you know, be kind, capital letters, you know, feel compassion. Of course, in a way, it's more ordinary than that. (laughs) I mean, loving kindness can blaze up sometimes in in us, very, very strongly at times. Um, But, you know, a small but steady flame of kindness, if it were there all the time and brought to bear all the time, might be more valuable than the big flare-up, although the big flare-up can be very inspiring. But, you know, something small and steady actually would uh, go a long, long way. So that's that's the key moment to look for. You feel the pleasure or the lack of it. You avoid being pulled into craving or pushed into aversion. And at the same time, try and respond with kindness. And after that, uh, well, after that, the universe steps in and takes a hand. And if you've really grasped that key moment, the kindness you've brought to bear will modify itself appropriately according to the feeling that you united it with. So it's as if we're trying to make sort of receptacle of ourselves, to be able to hold, notice and then hold the feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, and... At the same time and in the same place, as it were, um, permeate that with a kindly response. So, we're trying to bring those two together and hold them together in that moment. So, if you've brought pleasant feeling together with metta, kindliness, uh, then mudita or gladness, sympathetic joy, naturally arises. You don't have to make it arise. You just have to bring the two together, and it does arise. If you bring an unpleasant feeling and permeate that with kindness, you don't have to make. You have to worry about oh, how do I make compassion arise. You don't have to worry about that. Compassion will arise. Meta um, transforms itself. It modifies itself in accordance with what's there, what's present. So compassion arises. If you're, if you're reflecting, as we will be tomorrow, reflecting on um, both pleasant and unpleasant feelings, so if we're reflecting on both um, joy and suffering and how they arise and fall and sometimes one gives way to the other, if we're, if we're engaged in that sort of reflection on the impermanence involved in all of this, then equanimity arises. And it's all, it naturally happens. It doesn't need a willed effort at that point. It does need a willed effort to bring the two together, the feeling and the response of kindliness, but after that, uh, that doesn't involve willed effort. So when I say the universe steps in, what I mean is that independence upon you responding to suffering with kindness, compassion arises. Kindness naturally transforms, unfolds into compassion when it comes into contact with suffering, either your own, because it's important to be able to do that for our own suffering, or someone else's. And similarly, it unfolds into gladness when in contact with happiness. Again, our own or someone else's, and similarly, it unfolds into equanimity when we, if we reflect deeply on um, suffering and happiness. So... I hope then you can begin to see it's not really a question of us creating compassion, sympathetic, joy, or equanimity. It's more that we need to create the conditions out of which they will naturally appear. So uh, about um, 1300 years ago now there was a a very famous uh, Buddhist teacher who lived in India and Sri Lanka. Um, and he described the Brahmaviharas as, as follows. He described them as the best, most immaculate attitude towards beings to benefit them, unstained with self-interest. Very lovely, isn't it? The best, most immaculate attitude towards beings to benefit them, unstained with self-interest. So it's an interesting, it's, an atti- it's like cultivating an attitude in response to other beings. Uh, I, I, I really like that about that quote Sanger actually describes them as the most rational of emotions because the most appropriate which i rather like that i i like the juxtaposition of rational with emotions it makes the point it makes a, an important point um, uh, bring, that, 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 that there's a that, that these these um these practices are about um, these four great emotions. But they need. We need to bring our intelligence to bear with them as well. We need their intelligent emotions that are appropriate. We need to bring our understanding to bear as well in order to be able to cultivate them. So, yeah, the most rational of emotions because the most appropriate. So, the, what we're trying, what we're engaged on, or going to be engaged upon for the rest of the weekend, is. Um, hopefully then stemming from a core of confidence, kindness and appreciation of ourself, we can aspire to these best attitudes to beings, most rational and appropriate of emotions. So that's fairly easily explained. I hope it's fairly easily understood. But of course, it's not fairly easily done. (laughs) So I need to say something about why that is before we have a go. Easy to explain, hard to put into, pra- into practice. Then why? Well, first of all, because we don't usually mo- notice the key moment. Uh, we're not aware enough. Secondly, because we're re- used to responding with feel- we're used we're used sorry we're used to responding to feeling with emotions other than kindness. So we're not emotionally positive enough. And then thirdly, we don't understand the nature of things thoroughly enough. Right? We're not clear enough. So we're not aware enough, kind enough or clear enough. We're a bit aware and we're a bit kind and we're a bit clear. <laughs> right. But, you know, it's what I said at the beginning. Um, in order to really kind of cultivate and uh, uh, take on these practices, we're going to have to be more aware, more kind and more clear. So how could we improve on all of this so not being not not being not aware enough uh, well the context of um, being on one retreat doing the mindfulness of breathing practices uh, practice helps a lot and uh, in terms of you know n- normal meditation practice at home uh, it's why we teach both those practices. You have both the mi- mindfulness of breathing and the bhavana as two basic kind of practices then. It improves our um, awareness, but it also helps with positive emotion. So uh, another thing that helps, which is certainly happening this weekend for, um, <clears throat> I'm sure, for most of us, is just having less input from time to time. You know, less, moving away from a busy life to a situation where there's a lot less input can calm things down a bit in our mind and our body and maybe we'll just notice things more, a bit more subtly, things that we don't normally have the time to see. So giving ourselves more space helps become more aware. So so does slowing down a bit. Um, So does taking notice of ourself, uh, rather than often being in situations where really we're being called upon to take notice of Something outside ourselves, other people. Taking notice of our physical being, um, and taking notice then, letting that leaf lead into taking notice of what we're feeling. Just notice it more. So, second thing was was um, being uh, emotionally positive. Uh, so then, especially developing meta and kindness for ourselves. All these Brahmavihara practices, as you'll find out, the first stage is always developing kindness for ourselves. Uh, so from that other benefits arise. Uh, more confidence, it gives us more confidence to do that over a period of time. More emotional robustness. Uh, and I think maybe most importantly, meta for oneself provides resistance to older emotional patterns in us. When they arise. That's, the, if you remember, that's the being drunk. That's being under the sway of likes and dislikes. Um, but but we do, apart from sort of, uh, apart from the more kind of, well, in a way, obvious likes and dislikes that we might have, that some of them can be fairly easily dealt with. But others actually go, a bit more deeper rooted than that. It's a bit more like there's whole currents of habit and pattern in our in us. And they are going to be challenged by doing these practices. If they're patterns that have led us to respond with um, aversion towards a situation or towards people or craving towards people or aversion, if that's there in us, then it's going to be challenged. Those sorts of deeper seated patterns, they're going to be challenged by doing these practices. And that's a good thing. Um, We don't bring ourselves happiness by getting involved in aversion and craving. So that's quite an important um, consequence of practicing the Brahma Viharas. and the, the actual practice itself means that we do get um, more emotionally positive. Uh, so, but it might be useful as if at this point um, to just identify what some of these older emotional patterns might be. So pleasant feeling, in, in Buddha's teaching, pleasant feeling is said to have an underlying tendency to craving. It's kind of built in, it's kind of built in with it, it's not, it's, there's there's always a tendency there, if something's pleasant. Um, We wish it to continue and repeat. It's natural, we just wish it to continue, it's pleasant. Uh, The trouble is so that then craving for it arises, so we get caught in something, something, uh, we get caught in greed or a craving response, grasping after it then happens. Um... Or resentment may arise if it stops. Or envy and jealousy may arise if it's somebody else's pleasant feeling that we would like. Their good fortune that we would like. So there's craving, resentment, envy and jealousy. And a bit more subtly, there can be a kind of vicarious enjoyment and satisfaction that can come in. And that's a bit harder to see. It can... can, um, it can sometimes disguise itself as sympathetic joy, but it kind of isn't. It's a bit more parasitical than that. Not a very, not a very pleasant um, experience, really. But a bit more, a bit harder to see. But, but certainly, in, in response to pleasant feeling, especially with other people, other people, there can be this vicarious satisfaction that arises. But it's it's me-centred. It's not really in, um, gladness for them. It's something that I gain in a kind of funny. Convoluted way. So then, there's unpleasant feeling, which, in Buddhist teaching, has an underlying tendency to aversion. So that's clear enough. So if something's unpleasant. We don't want it. We just want it to stop. We don't want it to. We don't want it to continue, and we don't want it to repeat. Uh, other things arise in dependence upon unpleasant feeling Um, because of course you'll have noticed that it depends upon unpleasant feeling it's not always that compassion arises we know that (laughs) ourselves sometimes it depends upon suffering um, our experience of suffering our own and someone else's it's not compassion it's something like horrified anxiety that can arise or or even a a sense of helplessness or hopelessness in in response to suffering all sorts of things arise it's uh, certainly not... uh, Certainly not compassion all the time. And then if we're trying to reflect on both suffering and joy, um, it's more difficult to see if that has an underlying tendency. Perhaps if it does, it's it's connected with delusion, with deludedness, not seeing things clearly enough, um, not understanding clearly enough that suffering and joy are both impermanent. So, in dependence upon that, the kind of things that arises. Is, is a sort of indifference um, rather than concern. It's a kind of indifferent um, approach, where well, you might have a perspective, but it's a bit of a remote, cold perspective on things, and uh, uh, leading to indifference. And the other thing that can happen is emotional turbulence, rather than a calm equin, You know, a calm mind with um, pervaded with uh, permeated with equanimity. Actually, what can happen is a lot of emotional turbulence. So metaphor ourselves helps anchor us and avoid some of those old emotional responses of ours. So no doubt um, you can all recognize at least some of the list, some of the examples from the list that I've given. That's my own list. (laughs) Uh, But I expect you can recognize some of it. So, for example, I'm quite good at indifference whilst at the same time taking great pride in my depth of perspective on things <laughs> and even people but I can fall into an indifferent I, I lose my concern I fall into a bit of a kind of remote, indifferent uh, emotional response to it uh, and what, what I need to do is reconnect with Meta for the, for the whoever it is or the situation uh, now, okay so all these are, are uh, you know, explorations of how to begin and what to do with these practices. But we can't wait until all these old patterns disappear before starting to practice like the, And there's no need for that. Um, we'd probably never start. But anyway, the actual practices themselves provide help with um, eradicating the patterns. But it's good. It's good to have that kind of uh, overview of the process, the kinds of processes that, that we're going to need to engage in. Um, but very specifically, it's not just that in general um, the Brahmaviharas help with these tendencies. Actually, they, they, they can help very, very specifically. So, for example, if anxiety arises when contemplating suffering, then what we can do is reflect that everything is not always painful, that joy also exists. And that does help with uh, a response of anxiety to suffering. Just that we can recall, well, all right, but it doesn't go on forever and other joy and happiness also arise. That that helps. If vicarious satisfaction, you know, the kind of parasitical kind of thing, arises when contemplating joy of someone else's joy, um, then to to avoid that getting a real grip on us, we can reflect that joy is subject to ending, and uh, and just and and then that helps break a kind of tendency to get intoxicated with. Joy. And if uh, indifference arises when contemplating suffering and joy, then, as I said with that one, you reconnect just by feeling metta again, by bringing that more to the fore in it. Okay, so that was all about um, uh, how to become more emotionally positive. So that leaves the third thing I mentioned, which is how do we understand things more thoroughly and become clearer about how things are from a Buddhist point of view? So one answer here is just to get on and practice the Brahma viharas And as you circle around that set, that mandala of meditations, it unfolds. It unfolds um, under its own steam, as it were. A bit of help from us is needed, but it does start to unfold. And even even the um, the beginnings of uh, experiencing some of those four great emotions itself brings greater understanding so one answer to how to uh, increase our understanding is just do it just engage with just have some faith in the practices and uh, and engage with them so you might wonder you know how that happens well I think partly it happens just by the practices themselves eradicate at least some of our underlying tendency to craving and ill will, and even delusion. And when those get weakened and then replaced with kindness and compassion, actually that does mean we're going to be able to look things in the face more uh, more than we might. You know, look things in the face, look impermanence in the face, not recoil from it, uh, not avoid what we're seeing. So in a way, actually just doing the practices strengthens us emotionally, It makes us more emotionally robust. And the Brahma themselves, they are the appropriate response to how things are. So the more we develop them, the more they safeguard and strengthen us. So that's more or less everything I wanted to say. Just a few things maybe to um, finish off. Um, and they're mostly reflections from being on retreat, on these uh, sorts of retreats. Um, so the first thing is I notice in myself, but I also see it in others people when I've been on retreat with them that that doing the practices does in itself have a more general effect on us as human beings. It increases our confidence and our faith and um, increases our confidence in ourself, but also increases our confidence and faith in other people, trusting and trust in other people, just on a psychological kind of level. Uh, and then a bit, bit further than that, it also, doing, doing the doing the Bravihara has also increases our faith in the Dharma because you do see the results. You do start to feel the results. I mean, sometimes I think, uh, you know, we can start off thinking, compassion. It's nearly always written with a capital C. <laughs> you kind of immediately go, oh dear. <laughs> My wavering sort of experience of that doesn't seem to merit a capital C, you know, anything. Um, and I, I, but I think just doing them you know, even though you, you do have to take on board, they're going to uh, be wavery at times and uh, you know, disappear again. But actually, we can we can dwell on them. And uh, if you pract- when you when you practice them um, over a period of time, you do gain a sense of being able to dwell in those mental states, those those emotions, and that actually does bring confidence and trust in the world in general, and in other people, and in ourselves, but also in the Dharma, also in the Buddha's teaching. So that's certainly one benefitness, one one benefit. Uh, another benefit is is this business of that they are um, appropriate. They're the most rational of emotions because they're appropriate. It's not rational to of, to respond to suffering with, say, pity or horrified anxiety. That's not the most appropriate way to respond. The appropriate response is compassion. And out of compassion comes appropriate action as well. You know, out of um, it's not appropriate to respond to someone else's joy with envy. The appropriate response is to respond with joy. I mean, that's a win-win situation, isn't it? You know, they're experiencing joy. So I experience more joy because they're experiencing joy. You know, that's, uh, that's appropriate. The envy isn't. And it leads to suffering. And it leads to separation from, from uh, other other people and, uh, and even just psychologically it's not appropriate and it leads to suffering but I think um, from a Buddhist point of view more deeply than that it leads to this separation from other people, it leads to more and more of a sense of them, me separate, this is mine it's what I want, it's what I deserve it's what I need and and uh, what they've got and what, you know, you, they're not kind of, they're, 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 other people are seen separately so it leads to a separation and that's the core of what the Buddha, the Buddha's um, enlightenment experience um, uh, led him to, uh, led him to repudiate, that there is really, there is no separation, there need not be that separation that we feel between self and other. That the self that we feel isn't in itself inherently existent anyway. There is an empirical sense of self, obviously, but not in the kind of substantial way that we we actually feel it to be there. So there's a, an even deeper importance than level of practicing these emotions, these uh, pra- these meditations, that it, it, it tends to uh, undermine that sense of separate self, and that's a move toward that's where the practices begin to. Merge into insight practices from a Buddhist point of view, and that needn't be a way far down the line. Actually, you can get glimpses. You might get a glimpse of that this weekend. Uh, so that, and that again is another reason for, uh, and that's another thing that engenders faith. So confidence and faith arise, I think, of this appropriateness, learning to respond to the universe appropriately, and what it throws up for us. Appropriately, and then um, another aspect is uh, that came to mind. uh, One retreat I was on particularly was about purity and purifying my mind, Um, er and and that does touch into the business about eradicating old patterns, freeing yourself from our past. Um, The past will be there for reasons, you know. It's not that what we are in the moment has arisen from our past, and there will be reasons for it all, but they're not necessarily. They're not necessarily appropriate to us now. Some of these old patterns are, lead us into inappropriate behaviour. So these practices can free us up from that. And then um, uh, another, another uh, thing that came to mind was uh, from the experience of doing the Opeka Bhavna. So that's the development of equanimity. And there's a lot of, when, when we do that practice, there's a lot of reflecting on about the interconnectedness of joy and suffering. Of life and death, and of needing to be able to look at both, and you know, not um, not avoiding one and preferring to look at the other. Uh, so, I had a particular, it's actually here on this uh, at Taaloka quite a long time ago, it must have been the early 90s, I think. I was here and uh, it was an intensive, so it was a 10 day retreat. And uh, I noticed that when I, after some days into it, would be doing the Apeka Bhavna, and I I sometimes get, uh, I have this inner orchestra, <laughs> so I sometimes get this kind of inner orchestra, you know, starts up, and it's um, usually classical, but not always. <laughs> anyway, it I started up with um, one of the themes from Carmen, Bizet's Carmen, you know, the one that goes, uh, what is it, uh, the one that goes, uh, I'm not terribly, I don't get the tune, it's something like uh, no 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 that's not that's not wasn't the one. It was um uh, that's that was the next one. Uh the Carmen one was <laughs> that, one, that one, that one. That one. That was that Carmen. Uh that, that tune. So it was very strong, it was a forty you know, and I was going, Oh hang on, hang on. I'm meant to be doing the yeah, I meant to be doing the film with equanimity and I've gone into Carmen, you know. <laughs> so like, stop, stop, I stop. You know, so I stopped it. Uh carried on a bit. Weave weave our letter. Then I got the other tune. <laughs> that one. Uh, no, i got it wrong again. Uh Which you probably won't recognise. But it's Prokofius, Romeo and Juliet. So I go, oh my goodness, what's going on? I've got Carmen, I've got Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> I'm meant to be developing equanimity. I've gone into love affairs. Mm-hmm. Opera, a op- great operatic, you know, high emotion, haven't they? Both of those. Um, both of those uh, uh, well, Carmen's opera, Romeo and Juliet's the ballet. Um, so <laughs> I, at that point I started to pay attention <coughs> to what my... Inner orchestra was telling me. Uh, and uh, I thought it's interesting, isn't it? Because both those stories are about love and death. Mm-hmm. Actually, about violence and death. Well, Carmen is. It's about love and uh, violence. Well, love and hate. I mean, there's hatred, murder that comes at the end. Roman Juliet, it's not quite like that, but the love affair arises out of a feud. Mm-hmm. You know, it arises out of separation. It arises out of ill will. And then, of course, there's the great tragedy, there's the great, you know, misunderstanding at the end, and they die. And Grand uh, of Carmen, you know, it's, there's death at the end of both those stories. So at this point, I started t- taking my subconscious a bit more serious and thought, what is all that? And I just got this sense of, um, you know, that, uh, that, that those two things, love and death, they're like that. And I'm saying love and death, not life and death. Love, they're like that, interlinked like that. And we would like it maybe if they weren't. So we would like it if they were like that, but actually they're like that. So what we try and do is kind of, you know, not look at one and look at the other. And what happens is you distort both. They're linked, they're interlinked, and because we've got a preference, um, we tend to distort. The link that's there, but actually the link's there, and uh, you know the Buddhist teaching is is trying to po- point that out, and also point out that what we tend to do is distort it, so we don't see things clearly, so we respond inappropriately, so we chase after some things and run away from other things. Uh, Sorry, I got up from that random thinking, oh wow, that was <laughs> that's quite a pretty, pretty I really. Sort of trying to resolve to remember to listen to my inner orchestras. <laughs> Uh, so another connection that came up from um, from doing these practices is, is is just well apart from listening to inner orchestras is just just making ordinary co- connections. So I was in there I was trying to do the fourth stage of well I was doing the enemy stage of a practice. I think it was the development of compassion. And um, there was someone on the retreat that annoyed me. Uh, I hardly knew her, but you know, well, it somehow happens, doesn't it? And um, so I had her in the fourth stage, and it was having some difficulty making any headway with it until I opened my eyes. She happened to be sitting across the room from me. I opened my eyes and saw the woman, and actually, what I saw were her hands because she was sitting there sort of like that. And what I noticed was uh, I th- what I noticed was how work-worn they looked. And uh, I just, all the rest of the stuff that was getting in the way just dissolved. I just I, experienced just something, seeing something quite directly and uh, seeing her hands in the particular way that they looked. Um, just, I first thought, it's the marks of suffering. It's, well, it's, the, it's hard work. It might even have been suffering. I mean, you know, it might not have been, but I suppose it opened up to me just something that was a bit more directly about how, Human beings are mar- we are marked by suffering. Uh, we're also marked by joy, but in that particular meditation, I was, you know, reflecting on the suffering side of it. And there's something about just the ordinariness of the woman's hands, because obviously she'd she'd used them, she'd used them, had to use them physically quite a lot in the course of her her, her life. Um, so it wasn't a great detail, you know, it wasn't a great kind of. I didn't know anything in detail. I just saw so the marks of something, and uh, it did have quite a strong effect on me. I I, uh, I did think, oh, you know, what I'd like is just to be able to see the marks of um, suffering. I'd, in a way, the, knowing the details and the ins and outs, you do need to know that. Now, that does help, actually, to be able to evoke compassion, a compassionate, kindly response. But at that moment, I just thought there there is another level in which, in which um, human beings... Uh, experience suffering and that leaves marks on us and uh, i just had this yearning just to have the simplicity of being able to see that directly and then respond directly because in a way it's easier because it comes from a deeper level it's it's uh, you just see the human condition uh, and then i'm the same so it is a bit more of a direct response there um, and in comparison with that not being able to do that and having to go through all the hard work of thinking about them in more detail i just was weary of it i just was weary of that i just wanted to be able to do it from this deeper level so sometimes on that particular occasion i could i can't always so all of um, all of that um all of those are reflections from being on other retreats and that does bring me back to what i said at the very beginning of this which is about um that question from being on when I was on retreat while Twin Towers in New York were being destroyed, um, and so that, you know the world was in shock and it was on the brink of war, and there was I sitting meditating for hours every day in a, a lovely old um, building in Tuscany. Why was I doing? Why was I, Why was I meditating? Why was I meditating? Who benefited apart from me? Who could? benefit apart from me and I don't know that I really got left with a un- d- distinct and definitive answers to that I think it really just threw up questions from quite a deep level of my practice now, and I'm, 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 not gonna, I'm, not, I'm not to tell you about it in order to tell you what the answer is in any case it'll only be my answer and I think those sorts of questions um, you, we have to find our own answers to so it's not and I, I don't even know that I've got an answer for myself yet but um, I did think that... Um, I did think something. I did think it through a bit, though. It I, I did, did keep being in my mind. And I thought, well, say there's no effect beyond myself on this. Obviously, I have a sphere of concern in my mind when I'm meditating, but say there's no effect beyond myself, that's still worthwhile doing. Mm. That does mean that I am striving to make at least my mind the kind of mind that, that does its best to respond with kindness and a bit of patience and a bit of understanding. Um, that would be helpful. That is helpful. That would be helpful if everyone else was doing it. And then, because once you enter into that sort of reflection, you sort of, then you get to the point, well, if everyone else was doing it, we would be able to be in a deeper kind of communication with one another. We'd have that response that we got yesterday from the mayor of Paris saying, we're all Londoners today. He was just saying, we know what you feel, actually. We're, We're, you know, we're as heartbroken about it as you are. Uh, we're as upset about it as, as you are. We're as horrified as you are. Uh, so, the, the, if nothing, you know, so the, have, it would be worthwhile doing it because of that further effect. But, as the, but, but that's uh, so. All of that's fair enough, I think. And I'm sure you can come to your own, you know, reflections on that. They're worth, it's worthwhile thinking about. But it does come back to the question: of, Does actually anyone else benefit while I'm actually <laughs> meditating? Now, I think there's something to be said that's quite important here about Brahma Viharas because sometimes um, you, can, you can do this kind of practice and think, oh, when I'm actually thinking about, say I have Shubhavya in the second stage of the practice, right? I'm, I'm thinking about friends, so I think about bringing bring her to mind. Uh, do I actually have an effect on Shubhavya doing that? Now, I, I myself, I'm sceptical about that. I don't think I do. I think next time I see the woman, we have, we, you know, her rooms are next door to one of so that's quite frequent. <laughs> uh, I'm, if I've had her in a metabhavna or another brahma, I'm much more likely to respond, I'm much more likely to smile at her. And, you know, i, I be in a human communication more immediately when I am in her company. And, I, and that would work vice versa if she'd had me in her meditation. So it has that effect subsequently. Uh, I'm sh- absolutely certain of that. I mean, I know that for a fact. Um, Well, does it have any effect in the moment? Um, I think your answer to that, well, I mean, I do tend to think that I can't see them. I can't see how that could happen. I really can't see how that could happen. Mostly that's what I think. Um, Other people have different kind of approaches to that and and, and don't feel it's so impossible. Uh, So it's worthwhile thinking about just what you think is going on when you meditate. Um, But at least it affects our own mind. It certainly affects other people Once afterwards when we come into contact with them. It could be the beginning of a chain reaction if we were all doing it. And uh, on that particular retreat, the one which September 11th fell in the middle of... Oh, yeah, in the middle of um, I must say, I did have an inkling every now and again that there is a level of connectedness that we, in, we are about um, uh, us as human beings and other beings that is very mysterious, certainly not something that I understand. It's not something I tap into very often. But I think I did a little bit on that retreat, just because of the the shock effect, actually, of it all. And and partly because I was one of the few people in the situation that knew it had happened, and we were in silence a lot. So I think it did did actually give me a bit of an inkling about uh, that... There is a further effect. There is a, a much more mysterious, subtle effect that we could all all be engaged in—a sort of a network of of uh, connection that we could all be engaged in—in in this uh, way that the Brahma evokes and um, creates. But it is a, but it is mysterious. Um, I think that the other levels of the effect of the Brahma are maybe the ones that bring the most. The ones that require the most effort. I mean, if there is is a further level of of, uh, interconnectedness, well, there is. And therefore, engaging in the practices will have an effect on that. If there isn't that, then it won't have that effect. But certainly, we can't really know that quite. For short of insight, I think we can't know that. But we can know that it affects us. We can know that it affects our next-door neighbour when we see them in the morning. And... uh, We can know that if everyone was doing it, it would create a bit of a a chain reaction. All those are very good, very uh, good reasons for for engaging in the the meditation practices. And if there's even more benefit, then that's great. So just finish off then with, um, just repeat what we've already, what these definitions I've already said. First of all, it was Buddha Gosha. The best, most immaculate attitude towards beings, to benefit them, unstained with self-interest. Then Sangharaksana, the most rational of emotions because the most appropriate. And the other way that they're described as is uh, the four great catalysts of being. Certainly of my being and your being and possibly also for those for whom we feel concern and connection. We hope you enjoyed the talk. Please come and help us keep this free at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash community. And thank you.